We're an interactive group, so I'm going to start off by doing something interactive right from the beginning. What I want you to do is I want you to grab one of these cards right here, pass a card down, grab one for yourself, grab some pens, and here's the question I want you to write down and think about. It's going to take a minute because I'm surprising you with this question. What is it that makes you doubt Christ? Every one of us probably at some point in our life, probably at some point in our week sometimes, has had a moment where we stop and we think, is this really true? You know, are we just all just drinking the Kool-Aid together and convincing ourselves that, that this is really going on? If you can for just a moment, just think, and I know it's a deep question that I, you can't answer maybe in just two minutes, but try. You could put down a couple items, maybe a couple things that you doubt. What is it that makes you doubt? Don't put your name on it. You're going to give them to me later. I'm just going to take them. So just... I guess the best way to say it is what makes you doubt that Jesus is who he says he is? Okay, keep writing if you want. If you have a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 3. That's what we're going through today. During this series, I told you that one of the disciplines I'm going to try is not putting the entire scripture on the PowerPoint for a couple reasons. One, it's small. But more importantly, because I think we need to get into the discipline of actually bringing our Bibles if we're going to spend time in the Word. So I'm going to make that a habit that we can follow. If you don't have one, it's okay. I'm going to be reading out of it. But we're in Matthew chapter 3. We're beginning our study in Matthew by meeting John the Baptist as the Gospel writer presents him. Here's the beginning. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. This is quoting from Isaiah 40. Matthew begins by introducing us to John. John's clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So here's a guy standing out in the middle of the wilderness, dressed kind of crazy, baptizing people. There was some form of baptism in Judaism, but this is kind of a new type of baptism. He's saying, I'm baptizing you in a way where you can repent of your sins. So he's introducing almost a new practice. And he lives out there. And people can wander out from the cities into this desolate wilderness area and stand around to be baptized by John. It looks like around this same time that there were a lot of the religious leaders who were kind of curious as to what John was doing. Starting in 7, it says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John has a tough message that he's giving. He has a tough message that he wants people to hear. 
He actually just said part of it to the religious leaders. And I want to see what you guys think about these words. He says that produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Producing fruit. He actually implies that if you don't produce fruit, you're going to be worthless to this coming kingdom that he's preaching. He says the axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. One of the reasons we're going through the book of Matthew, one of the reasons that we're spending time reading Scripture on almost a line-by-line basis and moving away from some of the topical things that we've done over the years is because there are words in Scripture that surprise us because we've kind of neutered the words. We've kind of glossed over them. We've forgotten their impact. Maybe we preach a gospel that isn't exactly the way that it's spoken here by John. Does it bug you in any way that he says that if you don't produce fruit, you're going to be thrown away, cut down and thrown into the fire? What does it mean to produce fruit? Does that bug anybody? Is that the gospel that we're kind of comfortable with? You know, like, hey, just believe in Jesus, everything will be okay. That's kind of the modern day gospel, right? Just believe in Jesus, everything's covered. It's not what John is saying. Now, John, of course, he's the precursor. He's not Jesus. But he's saying that there's a different kingdom at hand that he's preaching. There's a different thing that's coming. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Imagine that imagery. Like, it's already there. It's ready to chop down those who are not going to produce fruit. That kind of bugs some people. Then then he goes on saying, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There's that same imagery again, that there is going to be one who comes, and of course I think we all know the story enough to know he's talking about Jesus, who's going to show up with a winnowing fork. What is that? What's a winnowing fork? Imagine this tool that they use to separate the wheat from the chaff. Does anyone know what wheat and chaff are? We've heard it enough that we kind of like lose it. Like we use the imagery. What does it actually mean? Yeah, tell me. What does it mean? Well, the wheat is the stuff that's growing up, and the chaff which covers the seed, which they need to use to grind into flour. Thing that they would use to scoop would make so that the seed would fall and take all the other the husk which is around it and have it fly away. Yeah, think of the winning fork, kind of like a pitchfork, right? Kind of something like that. You just kind of ditch the wheat up into the air, and it would separate it. But here's another separation metaphor that he's throwing out there. That this one who comes is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. Kind of the things of substance from the things that don't have substance. And the chaff, what's their lot in life? The unquenchable fire. So you've got to get the picture that John was probably not the most popular guy to hear, because his message was not like a feel-good message at all. And he's even pointing at somebody else. He's saying, I'm not even the person. So this is John's ministry. He's hanging out, talking tough. He's got a tough message to deliver, but he's clearly a prophet who's been told to deliver this. That part at the beginning of chapter 3 where it says, 
in verse 3, this is he who was spoken of in Isaiah. Isaiah predicted that there's going to be a prophet who's going to come and prepare the way. Matthew is identifying John is that prophet. So we've got a guy who's a prophet, who's been predicted, so he's fulfilling some sort of prophecy from the Old Testament, just his existence. He's preaching this tough message. Even the religious leaders that come out, he's being very tough with them, saying, you're not good enough. Don't you think you're good enough just because you call yourselves children of Abraham? These stones, God could turn into children of Abraham. That doesn't mean anything. Just because you're descendants of the right line. And he's talking about this person who's coming after him. Sounds like somebody who knows what they're doing and has an important ministry. So let's just put that as the first step of understanding John. Now we see Jesus and John interacting as we go on. Here comes Jesus. Jesus comes to be baptized. In fact, to give you guys a little bit of context, would you go a couple slides forward? Let me show this thing real fast. I want to show this map. You know, A lot of times we talk about biblical things and it's hard to picture where we are. Some of you know the map of the Bible pretty well. Some of you just haven't paid much attention, so I thought I'd just throw one up here. Jesus has been up in Galilee, which is in the north, and he makes his way along this little red line right here, down across, here's the Jordan River. Now we're going to talk in a second, this is a debate as to where Jesus was baptized, but of course, like everything in the Bible, there has to be a debate, right? Like, nobody could ever agree on it. So... Some people, according to the ones who do this map, think he went all the way down here along the Jordan. This is where he got baptized. And then we know the story that after he gets baptized, which is what we're talking about next week, he went into the wilderness to be tempted. Some of you have never actually seen the Jordan River, so I thought I'd find a couple photos of it. You want to go to the next slide kind of show you, like, this is what it looks like. Not, it doesn't exactly look like the way you'd normally think of it. This is one site that people think Jesus might have been baptized at. There's two groups, of course, and this is the first group, and they have all these reasons why they think it was here. And this is the one that matches the map. Go to the next slide. This is the other place. This is more of the kind of Disneyland version, you know. This is the second site, and this is actually what they call, like if you go to the Holy Land and go on a Holy Land tour, they'll take you here. One thing that's in common is in both pictures, the river's pretty green. I'm not sure why John picked this as the place to baptize people because the water doesn't look like it moves very fast. Maybe that's why it was. Maybe it's green and warm like a bathtub. Ew. I don't know. Maybe they could get more people to go in. But that's the two things. One more slide I'll show you. This is a picture that we took when we were in the Holy Land a couple years ago just to show you all the people kind of gathering to be baptized in one of the spots that Jesus was supposedly baptized at. So if you pick this spot, you go there and you get all excited. You wear a white robe and you go in the water and they baptize you, and now you're extra special because you've been baptized where Jesus was baptized, except you have to first debate whether it was. Now Jesus comes to be baptized. Let's read what it says. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? John recognizes who it is that's coming to be baptized. We know that John and Jesus are related, but the more important point is he recognizes who Jesus is. Jesus is coming to be baptized by John. Remember, the people coming to John to be baptized are, are repenting from sin. John recognizes that the Christ himself is coming to him and saying, 
baptize me. It's like, I should be baptized by you. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this in fulfillment of all righteousness. Then John consented. Curious phrase. Why would Jesus want this to fulfill righteousness? Partly because he's fulfilling prophecy. Partly because he knows that it's his Father's will that he be baptized to begin his ministry. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Imagine if you're John, you've been in the wilderness preaching for some time, you have this ministry we talked about, these tough words to deliver, you have this office as a prophet. Now it gets even better for you. Because Jesus, the Christ, has finally come to be baptized. What do you think is going on in John's mind at that point, first of all? Remember, John's ministry is, there's one coming who is better than me. There's one coming who I'm not fit to carry his sandals. And then the one that he's talking about has shown up. What does that mean for John? I mean, if your job is to announce the coming of somebody and he shows up, seems like you might be out of a job soon. You might be a little bit concerned about what it is that your role is now going to be. That's number one. Two, you get this opportunity to baptize Jesus. It seems from John's speech, he knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what's about to happen. He is going to be baptizing the incarnation of God. So he protests. Jesus says, no, let's do it. He does it. And then he gets this awesome sign on top of it sealing the deal. It says that he sees like a dove. A lot of us picture that there's really like a dove flying around. Like, I don't think that's what the text says. It says like a dove. So whatever he saw, whatever manifestation, whatever he was able to witness was falling like a dove. But more important part is he heard the voice of God. This is not a small thing because we know that Only in Jesus' coming does God finally start to speak after a long period of silence where he'd been silent with his nation of Israel. God speaking is not to be taken lightly to hear the audible words of God saying, this is my son. So if you're John the Baptist, you might be out of a job, but you've got some definite confirmation that what you've been doing, you're probably on the right track, and now you know and you've seen it. End of story of John. Let's flip over to chapter 11. I'm going to skip ahead for a second. And I'm going to give you one verse before you get there. You don't have to flip there. In chapter 4, verse 12, we know that John is arrested. Because in chapter 4, verse 12, it says, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. In this gospel, that's the only transition we have until we get to chapter 11. Let's look at chapter 11 for a second. After Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John 
heard in prison that Christ, what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? What's curious about that? Philip? It seemed like previous that he did know he was the one that was coming. When Jesus arrived, he gave the impression he already initially knew, and then after that, you know, like God's awful voice. Yeah, is it curious that suddenly he's asking this weird question? I mean, he's saying, are you the one? I mean, if you flip back to three, which you don't have to, I'll read it for you. Remember, John's ministry is to say the following things. Like, he's supposed to say to people, like, there is this one coming. That's his job. His ministry is to use those words. Because there is one coming, right? I mean, that's part of his deal. I baptize you with water for repentance, he used to say. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. So if your job is to announce the coming of this person, now you're arrested, and you send your disciples to say, are you the one? What else is curious about that? I mean, did anybody get more evidence than John? I mean, okay, his ministry is to announce him. That's number one. Two, he recognizes him, right? Says, I shouldn't baptize you, you should baptize me. He clearly understands who he's talking about. He's got these tough words. He's even tough to the religious leaders. He's accusing them of not even being good enough just because they're descendants of the right lineage. And then when Jesus shows up, he not only says, I don't know if I should baptize you at all. I mean, you should baptize me. He gets the better thing, which is he hears a voice from God saying, this is my son. So why is he sending the disciples saying, are you the one? Yeah. I feel like he's on his deathbed by that. You know, he's about to be killed. He's sitting there in prison. I think he's almost having doubts. I don't know what it's like to sit in prison, but I'm guessing he's probably been there for a while wondering and second-guessing the Lord. Okay. It's not in front of us right now in text. Does anybody remember what's going on with John? Why is he in prison? It wasn't a Herod the... I know it was one of the Herods that arrested him. Yeah, one of the Herods had arrested him. And what was ultimately going to happen to John? I mean, he was arrested. He was going to be beheaded. It was Herod's wife's daughter, right? Wanted his head so that she could dance with it on a platter. We know that from other gospel accounts, but we know that you said, I don't know what it's like to be in prison, but I can tell you that I don't know what it's like to be in prison either, but no matter how good or bad it is now, it was probably much worse back then. It's just my thought, you know? Like it wasn't, didn't have any of the comforts of our modern day prison, if you could even call that comfort to begin with. But I picture him somewhere chained in a dungeon probably knowing that he's going to die in some way. And even if he doesn't know he's going to die, he's in this place. What's going through John's mind in the dungeon? Do you think he's heard about Jesus? It says, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he asked him, are you the one or should we expect someone else? So he knows what's going on. What are some of the things that Jesus is doing, by the way? Just from your own knowledge, we'll get to them. But what are some of the things that Jesus is doing? He's healing people. He's preaching. He has a gospel message, right? For the poor. What else does Jesus say that maybe John really perks up when he hears these words? He says, I'm here to set the captives free. I'm here to set the captives free. If you're John and you're in prison and you hear that Jesus, part of his ministry is to set the captives free, that's the part of the gospel message you like the best. Because you're in prison and he's going to set the captives free. 
I mean, you know that if he had one phone call, who would he call? He's like, hey, when do I get my first phone call? You know, because you know he's going to call and go, hey, cuz, I'm in jail. So what does Jesus do? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Is that the answer you think John wanted to hear? Again, John is having serious doubts. We often make kind of cardboard cutouts of the characters in our Bible. And here is John, who is not like that at all. He's a man with real doubts when he's facing his death. See, unlike us, he's got so much more than we could ever ask for. What did you guys write down on these cards? Look at that for a second. How many of you would like to have Jesus answer every question you have? How many of you would like to hear God open up the skies and speak audibly? Isn't that what we humans crave? Let's be real. I know, we're going through the Bible because it's the Word of God and it's supposed to speak to us, right? But if we had our preference, wouldn't it just be better? Like if we could form a little like, uh, you know, I don't know, like an exploratory committee. Get together and like have a meeting with God to tell him like how us humans would like to relate to him. And go, you know, we've been running a few focus groups lately. And it seems to me this idea of you opening up the skies and speaking is playing really well with the people. I think we could grow the church a little bigger. I think that would crush a lot of the doubts that we have. What do you guys think? Would that play well? Seem like something that aches in our hearts that we want to have that kind of direct communication from God? Here's the beauty of these words. You could be a prophet. You could be a guy who can swear off all the comforts of life, live in the wilderness, eat locusts and honey and all that kind of stuff. Wear the crazy outfits. Be rejected by a lot of people. You could be a guy who hears from the Lord directly, who baptizes Jesus himself, and when you're in a dark place, you're still going to have doubts. It's almost like it's not good enough that we hear from God that one time. We're going to want it every day. We're going to want it every minute. I can't imagine what it's like to do what John got to do. First, to live his life, but second, to witness that event and to have that honor of baptizing the Lord and to hear the Lord's voice from heaven. But I think most of us know exactly what it's like to be in a dark place where you just don't know. To send out that cry for help that maybe some of us do with God sometimes and go, is this really real? Are you the one or is there somebody else? Because it seems like I'm praying for this, or I'm broken over this, or I'm scared about this, or this is happening to me, or I'm stressed out, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. It's not getting any better, and I'm praying, and I don't hear anything, and I hear your words, and they sound good to me. You're going to set the captive free. You're going to heal the people. You're going to raise the dead. But that doesn't seem to be happening to me in my place. Are you really the one? And Jesus doesn't respond except to say go back and tell him what you see he already knows what jesus is doing he's heard his disciples are some john's disciples 
are telling him what's going on. Reminds me of Job, who's sitting there like stressed out over his life circumstances. And all his friends giving him all this great advice. And finally the Lord does speak to Job. And what does he say? Does he tell him why it's happening? No. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Basically like, who are you to even ask these questions? As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. I love that line. We often think of it as just a transitional statement. But I want you just to think about this for a moment. Jesus has just said to his disciples, go back and tell them what you see. Basically give them the answer, which is, let my actions speak for themselves. I'm not even answering the questions. And his disciples like go back to tell John, which I'm sure they're thinking the whole way, like, he's not going to like this answer. <laughs> this is no better than what he asked before. Like, I don't think we got an answer. And then there's this moment where Jesus then turns back to the crowd. Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Somebody who's going back and forth in what they say? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is clearly no. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. How cool would it be in this scene? Jesus is turning around, looking to see. Disciples are kind of out of earshot a little bit. Going back to tell John. And he turns to the crowd and speaks so well of this person. And I think it's telling to us when we look at Scripture that we need to understand that even when we're in that place, in a bad place, even when we're questioning when we shouldn't be, whether Jesus is really the one, that he doesn't say a single thing about John except the following, I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. It's pretty uh, good stuff to be hearing from the Lord. I mean, that would be like a good, well done, good and faithful servant type of speech to hear from Jesus. But, there's the but. Jesus says immediately afterwards, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophecies in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. That last part's kind of tough, so let me walk you through what Jesus is saying. He says that the greatest that have ever been born of women is John the Baptist, yet he, who is least in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than he. We're living at the intersection right now in this gospel of something that's changing in the earth. 
John the Baptist is basically the last of a great line of prophets, and Jesus is announcing him to be the greatest. But what's about to come is even better. Because anyone who participates in God's kingdom that's about to be announced is going to be even better off than John. Jesus is predicting here, by the way, and it's going to happen, that John is not going to make it. He's not going to live long enough to see the fulfillment of Jesus' kingdom, his his death, his victory on the cross, his resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit to begin the church. He's not going to live to see that. And he's saying to the people who are listening, basically, John the Baptist was the greatest, but any of you who join the kingdom of God, you'll be even better off than he. Not that anything bad is going to happen to John other than on earth, he's going to die. Your tough words. We read them in Scripture, and sometimes we don't understand what Jesus is actually saying. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been advancing forcefully, and forceful men lay hold of it. There's two ways to read that. There's a big debate about that passage. Does it mean that the kingdom of God is going to advance forcefully? Some people say a better reading of that is that the kingdom of God is going to face opposition and will be opposed by forceful people, which is kind of what's going on right now. From this point forward in Jesus' ministry, he's going to, he's going to face increasing hostility more and more. For all the prophecies in the law prophesied until John, if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Jesus is referring back to a prophecy saying that Elijah would come to re-announce the Messiah. Of course, Elijah is not going to rise from the dead. It was meant to be that one like Elijah was going to come, and he's saying John is that guy. It's a lot of scripture for one night. But here's the point, I think. Even if God right now spoke audibly to every single person in this room, or even collectively, there's going to be moments where we have doubt. And if John had doubt, I think the message is that it's going to happen to us at some time. What do we need to do collectively as a group? What's Jesus' answer when John doubts? What is it? Does he say, go back and tell him, I am the one? What's, What's the answer? Well, one, I think that I know that passage has specific ramifications for Old Testament um, saying what, what Messiah was to do. So there's an aspect that those actions, um, they prove, they, they have validity to what he said. Um, you know, the Messiah we can trust, and, and that's what we are supposed to have is hope that when we read these words, when we read the things that happened to Jesus, that those actions say that they do point to the fact that is the Messiah that we can trust the things he has done and it's not just empty words. So you're saying because John could kind of connect the dots he could say like tell him what's happening he should know the scriptures well enough to know to say yes that's the fulfillment that must be it. It's a fair understanding of it. I think that's probably right that John sitting in a dungeon in the dark somewhere wants to play a game of connect the dots in messianic prophecy because he's got nothing else to do right so he's thinking Match up these seven things that I've done with verses from the Old Testament. See if you can figure out which ones they are. Okay. What do you think? It's almost like we don't get to see this, and John's not seeing it, but it's almost like he gets to hear the account and saying, look, they're telling you. What more do you want? Okay. I think it's way bigger than that, because even though, yes, we can connect the button dots with what we read here, and that we, you know, yes, we put our hope in the trustworthiness of Scripture, all that stuff, we can see Christ doing things now. Like we can see, I see life change. You see these sort of things happening today. 
And so there is this sense that <laughs> that God is alive and active here and now. And that even amidst these doubts that people are being saved, that, that people are being risen from the dead or healed or, you know, these things that are very tangible that make us say, yes, God is here. If God is really God and if he's real, we should be able to see something. And it should be able to speak louder than, than anything else. Okay, let's answer the question. I think it would be unfair to just throw this question out there and not answer it. When we're in those places, the thing that we have to do as a collective body of Christians is to remind each other and to work with each other on the things of our faith. For me, when I'm in the midst of doubt, what I'm trying to do is remember in my own life and in the lives of others, what do I know to be true? How do I remember that this is true? Where were the points of my life where God met me where for, those, for that one second, when that one minute, I absolutely knew without a doubt that this was real? And hold on to that for a moment. What about the testimonies of other people in this group when you hear what God has done in different people's lives? Push back. Well, I don't know if John the Baptist is so much doubting his position or his situation so much as he's doubting whether or not it's the Messiah. We have to assume he accepts that because of how he responds to Jesus when Jesus comes to him. I don't know if, the, if he's doubting so much the situation as much as he's doubting whether or not the Messiah, because the text says all he's heard is that Jesus has talked about, he's taught and he's proclaimed a message. To me, it seems like Jesus is sending him the information saying, yeah, you've heard this part of what I've been doing, but this is also what I've been doing. So rest assured, you know, take, have faith, you know, I am the Messiah. But wouldn't it have been easier for him to say that? Couldn't he have said, yes, I am, and here's why, would you want that if you were John the Baptist in prison? John the Baptist, I'm, I'm pushing back and saying he's not struggling with the fact that he's in prison. Right. I believe that you're absolutely right, except that the, the way I would rephrase it is, I believe he's struggling with whether or not Jesus is the Messiah because he's in prison. I mean, I, I don't want to interpret beyond the text. I'm just thinking that when he's in his, in his place where he's baptizing, doing everything he wants, he seems very strong and very firm and very sure of what he's doing. When he's in prison, suddenly... And I mean, the text says, like, while he was in prison, he heard what Jesus was doing. So he already knows some of the things he's doing. But that's when he says, go out there and ask if he's the one. I'll push back one more time. Okay, good. Because, I mean, God said he's the one, right? I mean, you, if you're interviewing John, like, you're like, but you did hear God say he was the one, right? He would have to say, yes, I did. And then when you were in prison, you started rethinking that maybe you heard wrong? Or what was exactly the deal there? I think he's more concerned with, did I get this wrong? I think that's right. I think you're hitting it right. I think, I think that's exactly what his concern is. The only question is, why does he have that crisis of faith? John heard God say, this is the one. This is kind of what we're missing in the conversation, is all of us are surmising like why John might be doubting or what the reasons are. Maybe he doesn't know that this is Jesus. But like that underlines the point. You guys have great reasons for why John might be doubting. The one reason he shouldn't be doubting it's because he heard God say it. But <laughs> Matthew 3, verse 17 says, This is my son, the beloved. The question, John puts a question different in 11. He says, Is this the Messiah? I mean... Right. Fair. Fair enough. And the link between them, by the way, and that's why it's important, the link between them textually is the one who comes language. Because he says, There will be one who comes. And then he later says in 11, Are you the one who is coming. 
or should we expect another? He's linking those two in his own words, at least the way that the gospel writer records the words. So there's a textual link where, so that we're not confused between, you know, maybe God said one thing, he's like, yeah, but does that technically mean, you know, and I, that's a good point. We have to be careful and watch those. But the only reason I think that we could defend the link is because John's words are, there's one who's coming, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry, and then later on he's saying, are you the one who is coming, or should we expect another? He's clearly referring to the same one. Bring it to a kind of a close. Jesus tells John's disciples to go and tell them what's going on. I like the answers you guys are giving as to why he did that. What I want to do is apply it to us. We also have moments when we actually doubt whether this is all real, whether Jesus is really the one. Two or three Sundays ago, I was getting ready to preach a sermon, and I was just kind of going through like all the points in my head, and as I was doing that, this crazy thought came into my head like, what if this is all nonsense? What if this is like all made up? It happens even in those kind of moments where you're getting ready to like walk outside and tell all these other people about God and you're thinking like, what if it's not real? And I wasn't in a dungeon or in a bad place. I was, everything was actually okay. Because intellectually or maybe in emotionally or whatever it is, there's those moments that we have where we think, are you the one? And the observations I would make are some of us would like a sign, some of us would like God to open up the skies, but it actually happened and it still didn't seem to make that much of an impact in the long run. All right, maybe that's overplaying it a little bit. But let's put it this way. At least from the text, we could see that even a person who heard directly from God that Jesus is the one, a few chapters later is asking, are you really the one? It also shows us the way that Jesus speaks about John that this somehow doesn't disqualify him from still being the greatest among all those who came. He didn't say like, oh man, he was doing so well, and then he just fumbled there at the end. He still gives him this great status, and then reminds us that we're even more blessed because we're going to be part of the kingdom that he's inaugurating. And the answer that he gives to people is, tell him what I've done. Yes, for all the reasons you've said, but can I just add this one more? we need to remind each other of the reasons that we know that God is who he says he is. That's one of the reasons he wants us to be in a church and a body connected to one another. When you're an isolated Christian, I feel you're like going to die on the vine because we need each other. Hebrews tells us, like, don't give up meeting together as a commandment. We need to meet together because at different points in our lives, some of us are going to be asking that question, is he really who he says he is? And one of us might say, yes, and tell your testimony about how you know. Remind each other. All of us need to be reminding one another of the things God has done in our lives. If you ask me about my doubts, there's going to be a list. But if you ask me to make another list, which is, what are those times in your life when you absolutely knew that Jesus was who he said he was? I could make a list Maybe it's not going to be as long, but they're going to be those moments, and I'd like to tell you those moments. And I'd like you to tell me your moments. And I'd like to sit down and have us as a group tell each other our testimonies so that the answer is, go and tell that person who's doubting, these are the things that you've seen done in your life that have happened. This is how we know that Jesus is who he says he is. Is that going to solve all doubt? No way. That's our struggle. I'm not going to, and there's no formula where I go, okay, if you do this, you'll never doubt again. Uh-uh. That's where our faith comes in. Do you have a comment?
Yeah, um, two things actually. Um, I don't think it's necessarily bad to doubt either. I think that means that, that you're questioning um, should uh, require you to dig deeper into scripture to find out more answers with it. So that's, it just means that, that God's bigger than what we make him out to be, you know? And I think that, that that drives us a little bit more to try to figure things out. And, uh, and I also feel like in John's case that if, if he was doubting, then um, it's probably easier to doubt before Jesus died on the cross than after he died on the cross and rose again. Okay. I mean, we have one benefit after Jesus, which is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost forward. So maybe that is one more reason. But I, I don't think it's going to make doubting less. So it's not like having the Holy Spirit would prevent you from doubting because I think all of us still struggle with doubt. I'm going to kind of leave it there because if you're looking for the how do we not doubt even when you hear the voice of God coming down and you get to baptize Jesus talk, I'm not sure I know how to end that one. Let's pray and close up. It's a tough passage, man. You guys know afterwards we go out, we're going to hang out tonight and, uh, and talk, so there'll be a lot of debate about this, I'm sure. And, I, and one thing I want to bring up, by the way, on a, on a lighter note, is that there are some topics that we are not going into too deeply that you can join in the conversation when we go like offline like last two weeks ago we started talking about the authorship of Matthew a little bit and you know was Matthew written by the disciple Matthew what are some of the evidences for it and what years were written and it's probably way more than you guys would want to know in here but we actually do end up talking about all those things afterwards so join the discussion with us because there's some interesting stuff you might want to learn it's a little bit deeper let's uh let's pray Lord, we would covet the opportunity to have you speak directly to us in our moments of doubt. But it looks like the end is that our doubts will even outrun directly hearing from you. Those doubts are going to somehow come back into our lives because we're human, we're fallen, we're sinful, we're just not perfect. Thank you, Lord, that you're a patient Lord, patient with us, knowing us for who we are. And thank you, Lord, that you have given each of us numerous times where our testimony could speak so loudly about the ways that we have known and seen the things that you've done in our lives today, not just in some passages in Scripture that happened long ago, but even now in our lives. That if we were to collect those stories amongst ourselves, that we would also start to fill up books with all the things that you have done for us. The times when we knew for certain that you were who you said you were, the Lord. Bring those to mind, Lord. Help us to spur on one another by reminding each other of those things so that they can be our living testimony, so that we together could cling to faith uh, through a reasoned hope based on those testimonies. Pray this in your name. Amen.